Welcome to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show. David Jenkins has been a professional freelance photographer since 1988. Over the past 35 years, David has covered a wide variety of subjects and assignments, including extreme sport, travel adventure, portraiture, reportage, dance, news and current affairs, TV wildlife, and landscape environment. In the late 1990s, David's growing concern about climate change, global warming, and environmental issues led to working alongside many environmental organisations and NGOs. In 2006, David met Megan Kessler from Macquarie University's Marine Mammal Research Group, who was about to embark on a PhD study of the possible impacts of whale-watching boats on the humpback migration past Sydney. Over the next three years, David assisted Dr. Kessler as a research assistant with her study. To educate himself, David learned as much as he could about the whales, but it soon became apparent that there were many questions still to be answered. Something needed to be done to bring all the information together onto an easily accessible forum, the Whale Spotter website. Are you still working alongside Macquarie University and Dr. Kessler? Uh, Megan was my first introduction into the world, really an intimate introduction to the world of whales. And she finished her study in 2010. And it was at the end of that time we were trying to decide what she would do when she was going forward and then what all the volunteers who'd helped her wanted to do. And I was saying that we should create a website where all the information could be collated and everyone could have access to it. And I think she wanted to move on to other things and Macquarie University was moving on to other things. And she said to me, well, why don't you do it? And I was silly enough to think that that was a great idea that one person could talk about everything to do with whales across the whole of Oceania. So that's been the madness for 13 years. Fantastic. What is the role of Whale Spotter? I felt there was a need to have an umbrella organisation or, or group that allowed educators and artists to work along scientists. So the scientists could tell us about what they'd been discovering, their insights, and giving us the latest information. And then to have skilled educators and artists such as illustrators and photographers photographers, graphic designers, turning that information into palatable graphs and diagrams and photographs that and, and written information that the public could enjoy and learn more about the whales. So if someone was to log on to your website, what would they see? It's whalespotter.com.au. There's an introductory page where there's some blog posts and things like that. And then there's in-depth information pages about the different whale species, how to go whale watching, some diagrams pages and, and information pages. Do you work with any other research or citizen science organisations at the moment? It's more a public education role. When you have a, a scientist there, st- uh, they'll be studying a particular species and looking uh, for insights, trying to discover something about them, and they're very focused on that sort of information. They may be covering a region or an area or migration or something like that. Uh, what I love to do is, is work alongside them, sometimes as a field assistant or just in talking with them, and say, well, what are you learning? What are, what are the insights? What are the things you're finding interesting? What are the things that are unexpected? And that's where some really interesting and magic things happen. It's like the, oh, that's that's interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. And I'm notorious for asking lots of questions. So I was known at school for driving teachers nuts for asking lots of questions. But I think, you know, you ask questions and 
And sometimes it's a back and forth. Like I was asked by a school child, um, does a whale have a belly button? And I was like, well, oh, I suppose they do. But I had to go away and research it. And this guy, well, they're a mammal. Of course, they've got a belly button. But it was just, you know, ask these wonderful questions that you sometimes have to go away and think about and go, oh, okay, that's really fascinating. We were talking about the breeding cycles of whales. Humpbacks have an 11-month gestation and the babies are all born around the July-August period along the east coast of Australia. But we're seeing breeding early. In May and June, we're seeing what we call competition pods where they're competing to have the opportunity to breed, yet the babies are appearing later. So what's happening there? There's, there's a PhD for someone in that situation of understanding when the breeding is actually happening compared to when the babies are actually being born. It's fascinating. If I could get the time off work, definitely I'd put my hands up for that one. Earlier this year, we had a census on humpback whale numbers migrating northwards and more recently the humpback whale numbers migrating southwards. Do you, do you have any idea of what the total population of humpback whales along the east coast of Australia? At the end of whaling in the 1960s, we were left with a population that was on on the brink of extinction with the humpbacks. There was estimated to be under 300 animals left. Wow. They have the most remarkable story of recovery of probably, well, any of the large mammals on Earth. Today, we estimate that there's over 40,000 humpbacks migrating along the east coast of Australia, and their growth of about 10 to 11% each year. What I think is the interesting question is we don't know what the original population number was, so we don't know how much this recovery represents in terms of that original population. You know, I'll be talking that 40,000 plus whales represents 10% of the original population or 90% of the original population. So that's a, a really interesting question going forward. We have three distinct groups in the Oceania area. We have a West Coast population, which is thought to be similar around forty to 45,000. We have the East Coast, Australian East Coast population, and then we have a population that goes up through New Zealand into the South Pacific, up to Tonga and Fiji and places like that. I don't have number on the New Zealand population at this point. That's fascinating. First of all, the whale population numbers have basically recovered uh, to such a phenomenal rate. That's, uh, that's a Astounding. And I guess that coincides with the cessation of whaling along, along the east coast and west coast. And wh whereabouts were the whaling stations? Do you know roughly where they were? On the east coast, there was significant whaling around the Eden area. And then again, up around the Byron Bay area. Depending on the area you're talking about, there was whaling out of Sydney. Archibald Mossman, Mossman, the area is named after, had a whaling station where the Opera House currently is. And I think the smell and everything about it, they gave, gave, very gifted him to get him as far away from town <laughs> as possible, a, a parcel of land over on the North Shore, uh, Mossman Bay. And you can still see part of his original whaling station. It's called the barn that's down there near the wharf at Mossman Bay. So that was back in the 1830s. There were two sort of significant whaling periods. There was the 1800s, 1830s, around that sort of time, and then a very significant post-World War II whaling period. With Australia, as I said, they just about ran out of whales to kill. It wasn't an environmental concern that stopped them whaling. It just became financially unviable because they couldn't find whales. It was costing them so much to find a whale that all the profit was gone in the fuel and crew and all those sorts of things. So just... Uh, and the the same, the same with the last whaling station, which was over at Albany, 
in Western Australia, they finished in 77 at 78, but they were hunting sperm whales off the West Coast there. Officially, whaling stopped in Australia in 1978. It's unbelievable that the only reason they actually stopped, it wasn't a matter of conscience, mm-hmm. particularly with the, the cruelty involved. It was more a matter of economics, to some degree a bit sort of representative of what goes on, um, for example, environmentally throughout the world. It's only when you know economically things don't become viable that we sort of develop a conscience and stop. Yes. Getting back to the the populations of whales, um, they migrate up our east coast and west coast um, of Australia during our winter period and then head down to the Antarctic in the summer period or the spring into the summer period. Do the, do the populations mix down there? Do you know whether that's uh, something that they do or are they always basically travelling exactly the same route uh, every time, same whales uh, up and down the coast. And I guess a, a way to measure that almost would be Migaloo, which is a albino whale, which has been migrating off our east coast. And I guess that would be an indicator whale, if you like. These are some of the interesting questions that were the catalyst for me starting Whale Spotter, because some very definite statements were made that whales only do this or whales only do that. And then as we learn more, we discover, well, that might not be the case. So with, with the migration, we have three distinct groups. We have the west coast of Australia, the east coast, and then the New Zealand South Pacific populations. And they were said to be separate. But Migaloo, who is probably one of the most identifiable whales, two of his trips, he came up the east coast. Now, he's an east coast Australian whale. He came up the east coast of the South Island of New Zealand, cut across the Cook Strait, and then ended up appearing in Queensland. And he was positively identified by a whale study in the Cook Strait in New Zealand. So everyone's kind of said, (laughs) well, okay, what we think is that they do remain as largely distinct groups, but there is some intermingling. Wow. The song lines that you have with the populations, which are distinct, sometimes you'll hear East Coast or West Coast join into the songs. So yeah, there might be some some intermingling going on. How is it that they know where to go? You know, there there's large tracts of open ocean there. How do they not travel in circles. Well, this is almost a similar question to how do the migratory birds are able to navigate across the globe and newborn birds on their first migration with no one leading them can end up right where their parents are on the other side of the planet. Um, with the humpbacks, to be honest, I'm, I'm not quite sure of the mechanism. The driver behind it is that the babies are born without the insulating bubble layers. So they that's what's forcing them to migrate to warmer waters. The Southern Ocean is too too cold and too rough for the little baby humpbacks to survive, so they've got to migrate. There's another really interesting question. I know that they're doing lots of they put tags on on different species to see where they where they're travelling. I'm not sure if it's a follow the leader type of situation or if they have an inherent uh, ability to know where they need to go. So when it comes to the migration of the whales. You said that there's one driving factor, which is for them to give birth to calves in warmer water because of the lack of blubber and insulation layers. What would be another factor that drives the migration of the whales? We don't 
have distinct breeding grounds on the east coast. On the west coast, they have more distinct bays up in the Kimberley area where the whales tend to gather. The most significant area on the east coast is probably Harvey Bay. So the whales are using that as a, a rest area, but they're actually going further north to areas up towards the Great Barrier Reef to actually have the carbs. And on the migration, that's when I was referring to those competition pods or heat runs. This is where, so the breeding strategy of a humpback whale is that the males literally push and shove and fight one another to try and separate the female whale away so that they can breed. And you see these can be very boisterous and sometimes very violent activities because you've got very, very large animals pushing and shoving one another and trying to intimidate one another and trying to separate her away from all the rest. So the biggest males in the migration we have the young juvenile adolescent whales coming up the coast in sort of April, but the main breeding population is not coming up until the end of June, beginning of July. To have the babies and the rest of the population to actually breed are the, are the drivers for the migration. When it comes to choosing partners, if you like, what are factors that govern her final choice? Is it This is where I think we go back to my early comments about it would be a, a wonderful PhD. So I was witnessing off Port Macquarie in at the beginning of June was competition pod after competition pod competing with one another. The question I'm grappling with there is if you have an 11-month gestation and the female whales are getting pregnant at that point, then we should be seeing babies being born in April, May, but they're not being born until June, July, August. Are they practicing? Is there actual breeding going on at that time? Is These are all the questions that are a little unknown. And when I was thinking about this podcast and, and doing this, I did a bit of research on that. And it's, this is a question I'm grappling with. And we couldn't find any information that anyone has sort of studied in depth this question. So at the moment, it's a bit of an unknown. Very interesting um, whether they're actually breeding as they travel north or whether they wait until they get to Harvey Bay or, as you said, they even travel further north. I mean, the waters off Harvey Bay, I imagine, would be warm enough. Why would they even want to go further north? And how far further north do they go? Harvey Bay is seen as a rest area, mm -hmm. and there's two distinct times. So early August is sort of known as the mugging se season, where you have whales that aren't, so the adolescent whales, the younger whales, who aren't necessarily part of the uh, the, the big adult breeding population are coming into the bay and having rest but they're curious they're coming around the boats and we call it mugging they come up to the boats and say hello and, and look at everyone and we, we love love that because they will really come up close to the to the boats breeding population has moved further north and they'll go up to the great barrier reef towards cairns and maybe even out into the coral sea so that's the northern migration the southern migration is different so harvey bay then has the mums and the newborn calves turning up in later august september and october and you will have the mums hugging the coast bringing the babies down feeding them getting them bigger and stronger so that they can survive going into the southern ocean and then the adult whales actually swim out into the eastern australian current and get a free ride down the coast and they'll join back into the population down around Eden where the current comes back into into the coast. But there's also do some of those whales come back down through New Zealand is an interesting question. Is there mixing going on between these populations in the Coral Sea is another interesting question. It's more distinct on the west coast. You have the whales coming up to the Kimberley region. They're breeding up around Ningaloo and uh, Exmouth and places like that and then 
then coming south again. Do the two different populations look different to one another, the West Australian and the East Coast? So the, the difference between the northern and southern is that the northern hemisphere humpbacks are more darker in colour and are overall very dark grey, almost black, and they might have some white on their pec fins. In the southern ocean, uh, the southern hemisphere, our, our humpbacks have a great variation in colour. Uh, we've got everything from whales that are almost completely dark grey, black in colour, right through to Migaloo, who's completely white. Now, he's un- an outlier, he's unusual, but we have a lot of variation in, in the whites and greys that will be along the flanks and sides and belly. So most of our whales in the southern hemisphere and across all these populations have white bellies and are white underneath their tails and peck fins. One of the main driving factors for their southern migration is for them to travel to the Antarctic where the primary food source is the krill. I was just wondering if you could give us a little bit more information there about the feeding and and also the krill in the southern oceans there. When I started my involvement with this, people were quite adamant that there was no feeding on the migration. But anecdotally, with more and more people whale watching and observing whales, we've seen more and more witnessing of feeding behaviour. During the pandemic, there was a couple of mass feeding uh, megapods down around the Eden south coast of New South Wales, Eden area, uh, which really alerted people to the fact that they are feeding on the migration opportunistically. The main feeding grounds, though, are in the Southern Ocean. And what do you think they might be feeding on opportunistically yeah, at places like Eden? And, and why Eden? I think it might be to do with the Eastern Australian current coming back into the coast. You might have some upwelling our humpbacks in the southern hemisphere mainly feed on krill, but they also can feed on very tiny fish. So you might have bait balls and things like that gathering in those areas that they'll opportunistically feed on. Krill is the main food source of the majority of animals in the southern ocean. It's a very short food chain. In terms of the whales themselves, they don't have teeth. They have, as I understand it, a fibrous material called baleen. So we've got two distinct groups of whales. So you've got the baleen whales and you've got the toothed whales. So the quickest and easiest way to tell them apart is the baleen whales have baleen plates in their mouth, which are made from the same, the keratin-like our fingernails. Like imagine a brush forming from the upper jaw and they feed by taking a massive gulp of water and then straining by using their tongue like a ramrod, they push the water back out through those baleen plates and that catches the krill or, or tiny fish. The toothed whales, your dolphins, your killer whales, your sperm whales, they have teeth in their mouth and they will feed on fish, uh, seals, penguins, other whales. The easy way to tell them apart is that a baleen whale has baleen plates in its mouth and two blowholes. A toothed whale has teeth and one blowhole. Now that's interesting. And I believe you can also identify the different baleen whales through the shape of the spout when they exhale. We call it a field ID. So the first thing that I look for and I'm whale watching is we want to see what the shape of the blow is. Imagine like a cornetto, an ice cream, a traditional ice cream cone, bushy shaped blow. Comes up like a like a cone shape with it, like an ice cream cone. The southern right has a V-shaped blow. A blue whale has like a a pillar of uh, spout which can be up to 30 metres high. It's it's quite extraordinary. A sperm whale's blow is actually, it goes forward in front of the whale and, and to the to the left. So the first thing we're looking for is that bow shape. With the humpbacks, I'm trying to then see, does it have a dorsal fin? Humpbacks have a dorsal fin, southern rights don't. So that's the next thing that I'm looking to see. So when it comes to feeding in the southern oceans and 
I guess, chasing after krill. Perhaps they chase after small fish down there as well. The krill populations down there in the southern oceans, I imagine, are absolutely huge because they've got a sustained, must be over 100,000 humpback whales. How does the krill population sustain that population of humpbacks? Then you've got the southern rights, you've got the blues, you've got the seals, you've got all the seabirds. It's a massive amount of animals dependent on krill. The southern oceans are one of the shortest food chains on earth. You have basically the photo and zooplankton, the krill, and then everything eating the krill. The concern is that with climate change during the winter months the krill need the undersea of the sea ice to breed with the sea ice not expanding as much in the winter months there's a lot less habitat for the krill to breed on and this is where there's great concern that we could have a a very tragic boom and bust we've had this remarkable recovery of the humpback population but they go down to the southern ocean they just can't find enough food to sustain them we've had a couple of interesting seasons over the last few years where the whales turned up very emaciated very underweight we were very concerned that this season has been amazing because they've come and they're in great condition their body condition their size of them, the fat layers, the blubber layers have been fantastic. And it's been interesting because in places like Harvey Bay and the south coast of New South Wales, they've had a bumper whale watching season that had amazing activity, boisterous whales. I hadn't seen anything like it. These are all the links of the climate change puzzle. What happens here? How does it affect there? What are the ramifications? The the big concern is if we If there's a crash in the krill population in the Southern Ocean, it will have dramatic effects on all the wildlife. I was wondering if you could clarify the food chain because you mentioned a couple of animal species there, phytoplankton, zooplankton, and then the krill. One of the interesting things about the Southern Ocean is that it's missing a a vital element that we have here in normal oceans, which is little specks of iron that are blown off the coast in the wind. So on a windy day when the, the air is blowing these little particles of dust, they land on the surface of the water. And that's what the zooplankton and phytoplankton need to sort of start their food chain. The Southern Ocean doesn't have that. So the scientists are trying to reverse engineer it just to, well, how does this work? Krill are feeding on the zooplankton and then your whales are eating the krill by the tonne. And when they go to the bathroom, what they discovered was that the poo is incredibly rich in iron. So they were fertilising the ocean. That's one part of the food chain. Then you have penguins and the seals. You have species like the crab-eater seals. When they were first looking at them, when they looked at where they'd gone to the bathroom, it was red in colour and they thought they were eating crabs. What they've discovered is that they're taking big mouthfuls of the krill and they've got specially adapted teeth. The most amazing thing you've ever seen, a bit like the whales strain the krill out. The only apex predator sort of above them is then species like the killer whale, which are hunting the seals and the other whales. It's only a few levels of from your base zooplankton, your krill, and then whales, seals, birds that are feeding on krill. And then occasionally you'll have something like a killer whale that then will prey on those seals and other whale species. The shrinking ice fields serve as a substrate for the krill to feed on the algae etc so that's obviously going to be an issue for the krill populations on top of that there are large factory ships in the southern oceans not harvesting or killing whales like they used to but they're actually harvesting the other end of the food chain the krill Uh, we're using 
some of these products as fertilizers, as food substitutes, as pet foods. And so, yes, there's an industry which these massive factory ships go down deep into the Southern Ocean off Antarctica and, and basically hoover up huge amounts of krill and, and bring it back for human use in industry and agriculture and food sources. So you've got a shrinking breeding ground for the krill. Another thing that people aren't factoring into this is that we have a bioaccumulation of toxic chemicals that we have sprayed around in our atmosphere with a great abandon over the decades since the 50s and 60s, heavy metals, pesticides, all these sorts of things. And they actually bioaccumulate into the polar regions of the planet and are concentrating into the apex predators. So the whales, the seals and the krill are containing high levels of toxins. So not only environmental but health issues around us consuming any of these products or feeding any of these products to our livestock or our pets. We're using them in fish farming or whatever we're doing with them. You see krill oil in your health store. It'd be a very interesting question to talk to that. David, I was wondering if you could talk to us also about the other whale populations that we see along the east and west coasts of Australia. The two stars of the whale watching are, are definitely the humpback and the southern right whale. The humpbacks have made a dramatic and almost miraculous recovery from the brink of extinctions. The other populations such as the southern rights are not recovering nearly as well. On the east coast of Australia, there's probably only a few hundred southern right whales left. So to actually see one of those is really a privilege. Their main breeding grounds are more around the southern parts of Australia, so particularly in the Great Australian Bight. They're the coastal whales. They're the ones that will come in. So we see our dolphin species in the coastal waters. But then out to sea, you get a, a wide variety of whales. You get your blue whales, sperm whales, your fin whales. There's brooders. We get an amazing little population of dwarf minke whales that visit for a very limited season at the end of June, beginning of July, up on the Great Barrier Reef. You get things like the different pilots whales and then we'll get these amazing deep sea whales the beaked whales they're really wild they're, they hold world records for the deepest dives and the longest threat holds it depends what you want to see and then either go to specific regions at, at specific times of year so in the last six seven years eight years there's an amazing bio hotspot that's been discovered in western australia called bremer canyon which is about 70 kilometers out to sea off bremer bay which is is halfway between Esperance and Albany on the south coast of Western Australia. And there they're getting this amazing congregation of killer whales, sperm whales, some of these beaked whale species. Pilot whales are all coming into that region and it's a, an upwelling of nutrients from the deep ocean. And they've seen megapods of killer whales hunting blue whales and beaked whales in that area. And I, I never thought that blue whale is the largest animal that's ever lived on Earth, that killer whales would be capable of hunting those. So that's been an amazing thing. In New Zealand, they at Kaikoura on the South Island, they have a semi-permanent pod of a bachelor pod of sperm whales. So it's one of the premier spots in the world to go and see the sperm whales there. And then we have dusky dolphins, um, southern right whale dolphins, which are just the most extraordinary looking animal you've ever seen. They're black and white, but they have no dorsal fin. So they are just incredibly beautiful, but 
incredibly odd in the way they look. Then they have little, one of the smallest dolphin species, the little Hectors and Maui dolphins in New Zealand, which are just found in New Zealand. There's a huge variety, over 40 species of whales found in New, New South Wales waters alone. That's amazing. I wonder why the southern rights just haven't bounced back like the humpbacks. Well, we, we decimated them. They got their name as being the right whale to catch. They're reasonably docile. They're extremely curious and they love coming into shallow bays and estuaries and, and along the coast. So the f- original whaling that went on in Australia was called bay whaling, where they'd have the boat on the beach and someone up on a headland and they'd just keep a lookout. When the whale came along, they'd row out and harpoon it. And of course, unfortunately, the first of the whales to go were the mums and the calves. To give you an idea, a large humpback, let's say 16 metres or so long, 45 tonnes in weight, the same size big uh, southern right can be 80 tonnes in weight. There are much fatter whales, so the blubber content they could get off a southern right was significantly more, so they were the first to go. And also then the breeding cycle, we don't think that the whales breed every season. With the humpbacks, it's thought to be a two to three year breeding cycle. In South Australia, the studies they're doing there on the whales they're seeing in the Great Australian Bight, the southern right whales there, they think it's pushing out now to maybe four or five years between carbs. So that means that a female I was only having maybe two calves within a 10-year period. The rate of growth in the population is much, much slower. Yeah, that's a real shame of the population of southern rights, I think, off our east coast from what I understand is only a few hundred. Yeah. So they must have been virtually down to almost zero. We're very fortunate that we've got a few that have recovered. I was always led to believe that southern rights don't go any further north on the east coast than Coffs Harbour. A couple of years in a row, sort of southern right turned up in Harvey Bay. Sometimes I think these assumptions might be being based on the fact that we don't know what the original population was. We don't know what the original ranges were or original breeding grounds were. There's in Sydney Harbour, just west of the Harbour Bridge, there's Balls Point. When they were doing the work on the coal loader there, restoring it, they pulled back an old a roadway and miraculously it had preserved the Aboriginal rock carvings that were there and it showed a whale with a man standing in it and it believes that area just west of the harbour is very deep, that it may have been a breeding ground for the southern white whales and that the Aboriginal people would sit up on the headlands there and watch them. Again, talk of that they might have gone out and swum with the whales and actually ridden on the back of the whales as part of some uh, ceremony or something like that. So, yeah, some really interesting things. So, you know, that's no longer a breeding ground. We've very rarely occasionally get a southern right into Sydney Harbour, um, which usually is fantastic and causes absolute chaos, but it's great great to see them coming back into this area but to see southern rights on the east coast now is is quite rare. Do we know whether the Aboriginals hunted the whales? Not the Australian Aboriginal peoples. My understanding is that they saw themselves as the custodians of the land and that they saw the whales as their ocean kin who were the protectors of the ocean and they didn't have an active whaling culture but if a whale was washed ashore that would be a very significant food source for the people during the hardest time of year in, in the winter months. And because it was such a large food source, then all the groups would come come in together and share in that. Right, my understanding is that they saw eating the whale as the information that the whale had was shared with the, the people that way. Fascinating stuff. Really, really appreciated your time today. It's been fascinating. 
What I'd like to do to finish is actually for you to relate perhaps one or two of your most amazing close-up experiences with whales. Now, I know that you go up to Cairns and you swim with the minke whales, and also you were in Harvey Bay recently and spent quite a lot of time. I've had the privilege of being in the water with some whales up on the Great Barrier Reef, on the Ribbon Reefs, up towards Lizard Island. There's an area there where during the winter months dwarf minke whales gather. It's a wonderful experience because it's totally on the whales' terms. The whales actually seek out the boats. The boat will put out a drift line at the back and you are attached to the drift line and you just hang there in the water and the whales come and swim with you. As they become more and more comfortable and confident, they'll come closer and closer. And so you can have a whale within sometimes less than a couple of metres from you. They kind of steal my heart because the, the dwarf minkies are the supermodels of the whale world. They really are very pretty beautiful. They're absolutely stunning and that's a really amazing encounter. I've been lucky to swim with whales again in Tonga. I remember one little humpback calf. We called him rascal in the end, but he wasn't happy until he had chased down and touched everyone in the group. No matter how hard you swam away from him, he was determined to to come and meet you. Imagine a, a four-ton maybe four metre long uh, whale that's got the temperament of a, a puppy Labrador. Um, it's it's a little, you know, about the size of an adult ev- elephant. It's um, it's it's really something. So so that was magic. And then finally, for the first time, killer whales over in New Zealand. That was a very humbling experience to be in in the presence of such a powerful, intelligent animal. We heard they were coming up the coast and we went out to look for them. We were looking south off Kaikoura. There was this black telegraph pole poking out of the water and I just looked at them and I said, what's that? And it was this almost two metre high dorsal fin of the male. So there were 11 of them in this sort of extended family pod coming up the coast and they came and checked us out and you looking eye to eye. When a whale comes past the boat, you see the eye looking at you and you're you're dealing with a sentient uh, animal. It's quite humbling and, and quite awe-inspiring. Harvey Bay, those first couple of weeks of August is magic because we call it the mugging season because the whales come to the boats, uh, swim around the boats. I think at one stage we had eight whales swimming around the boat for almost three hours. For such large animals, they are... Uh, so gentle in some ways, but have such an ability to know spatial awareness of themselves in the water. And, you know, we call it a snot blessing when you're so close that when they breathe, you get covered in in snot. I looked over the side straight down the blowhole and almost had my hair blown back. You cannot help but just have a smile from ear to ear and this is on their terms i'm all for whale watching when it's on the whale's terms it's an amazing gift that they give us in doing that wow those are some uh, amazing stories i'm sure there are plenty more there as well and hopefully plenty more to come david it's been fascinating tonight thank you for joining us really appreciate your time thank you so much for having having me on it's been wonderful to chat to you You've been listening to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show. 